Welcome to Short Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me, as always, through the miracle of satellite technology, is Matt Risby. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Hey. Um, yeah, I'm all good. I'm kind of uh, green with envy at all the people in uh, my fair city enjoying Sheffield Dockfest this year, mm. um, a festival that has kind of snuck up on me and I didn't get my shit together in time to go, having been you know, variously distracted by house-buying antics and and kind of work and stuff that, like, I only really... Uh, it dawned on me that it was happening, like, a few days before the festival, and then my Twitter has just been a constant stream of people having a great time in my city, and, you know, sucks not being there. Mm. Yeah, I've been having a huge case of FOMO all this week, because not only are all of my friends who still all live in Sheffield attending it, but... A lot of people I'm friends with primarily through Twitter are showing up and attending the festival for either the first time or they're coming back after a few years. And also, like, a lot of people I used to know who lived in Sheffield who have since moved away to get jobs in the film and television industry are coming back as well. And I was just thinking, if I'd just kind of, like, planned it out and gone back for this week, it could have been such a fun time. But, it, like, like you, it just kind of stuck up on me. And even, like, a month ago, I was thinking... When's Stockfest this year? I should probably look into it and just never got around to it. Mm. So I think you and I are both committed that we're going to do something for it next year because for a festival that often involves watching deeply distressing movies, mm-hmm. uh, it is it is one of the more fun that I've attended in my admittedly limited uh, experience attending fe- film festivals. Yeah, yeah. I'll forever just remember my sad burrito after <laughs> the act of killing, the director's mm. cut of acts of killing, which is half an hour more of uh, upsetting material and yeah, having a burrito afterwards and feeling like, you know, my whole world was closing in around me. Um, mm, and just like, that's, that's one more burrito than all those dead people get to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. That sour cream never tasted sour. <laughs> mm, yeah. But like, I think we will definitely blow the lid off uh dot fest. I mean, these kids who are at this dot fest, 2018 they won't know what hit them when we roll up to 2019 we'll bring some uh, original dot fest swagger yeah i was gonna say we're gonna roll up and destroy the place mm-hmm. it'll be like any any cut scene of brooklyn 99 where they change like outfits and then you get a <laughs> slow-mo bit to like uh some some kind of beastie boys or something it'll be like that but slower yep. uh and it'll be us kind of like rolling up to say one for the 12th Holocaust documentary that we've watched this week, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, barely keeping our oh. eyes open. <laughs> yeah, or the next kind of slightly disappointing movie about a band. Mm. Which, like, there's lots of variety at Dogfest. It's not all that, but in terms of, like, the more commercial end of documentaries that get that play there, they do seem to kind of veer towards absolutely horrible things that happened in the world that will leave you emotionally bereft or kind of interesting thing about a band you like were you there that year where jonathan franson was there with that film about birds i was you and i saw that together and we were both ripping it to pieces as jonathan franson walked past us (laughs) like i i think about that all the time because like jonathan franson like the jonathan franson the author came all the way over the ocean to to sheffield to talk about this movie, but during the Q&A, 
continually answered questions with, look, it's not my movie. Ask the director. <laughs> and I'm like, well, why are you here? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I can I can see that maybe Dotfest invited you because you're like Jonathan Franzen, but like, mm. you didn't have to come. <laughs> if you've got nothing to add, don't come. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's so strange. It was kind of tangentially related, because didn't he write an article that kind of served as the jumping off point for it but yeah other than that he didn't really have a huge amount to do with the movie mm. but yeah was it, a it really was a really shit film as well it was a bad film a bad q a and i've seen a lot of bad q a's mm. um i honestly can't think of a good one <laughs> like this is a, a common complaint about anyone who ever goes to any event but yeah the the number of genuinely kind of great q a's that involve at least uh audience questions Mm-hmm. that are like good are very very negligible like q a where it's just a chat between the director and informed interviewer great yeah like you can get a lot of insight that way but once it gets to you know some poor member of the staff running around with a microphone to kind of hand it to people and then fumbling through their questions and kind of rambling on it mm. all just descends into awkwardness yeah i think that was the same year that that uh pulp had the film the the life life death mm. and supermarkets and and yeah. the q a for that was like super shit because every mm. other question was why didn't you choose a um sheffield filmmaker to make it don't you think that would have been better because obviously the audience is full of sheffield documentary filmmakers mm. the film was made by some guy from new zealand who was just coked off his tits throughout the entire <laughs> q a and every question jarvis cocker answered with i really don't know i haven't lived in sheffield for 20 years <laughs> like you know i you know i obviously grew up here but i've lived away from here longer than i ever lived here Mm. so i don't know is the answer and then everyone was like you know why didn't you choose a sheffield filmmaker and they were like again we didn't choose this guy he just contacted us and said i'm making a film about you and that Mm. was it so it was just like uh yeah i i i think the very worst i may have told this story before um on the podcast but by all means feel free to cut it out if i have but like uh at Docfest for the film senna mm. um and uh you got like at that point oscar nominated uh director in as if Kapadia, not quite oscar winner winner yet but like you know he got there like two years later yeah um him and his editor were up there and the, there was only one screening of it at Dotfest. I think it, it had already had a limited release, at like maybe the London Film Festival or or maybe Sundance London. I think maybe before. Um, but the the audience was mostly Formula One fans. Mm-hmm. So the first like group of questions were just really tedious questions about Formula One, yeah. about the cars, about like <laughs> how whether or not Bernie Ecclestone gave them exclusive rights to the vaults and everything. And I think at some point, maybe the moderator came on stage and said, has anyone got a question about the film mm. rather than about Formula One? Because uh, throughout the, the Q&A, as if Kapadia said, I'm not really that interested in Formula One. I just thought Ayrton <laughs> Senna's a fascinating guy. Doesn't the whole point of this film is you know you don't have to. I mean, I hate cars and I hate racing and I hate boy race. I hate any kind of like uh, kind of like petrol head activities. Top Gear is like my idea of hell. Mm. But that was like that was like most of the audience was made up of that. So they were like, "Has anyone got a question about films?" This guy stood up. And he had like a Dockfest lanyard on. So it was like he was obviously an industry guy, and he was like, "Hi, hey, yeah, I've got a question for the editor." And the editor hadn't had a single question in the previous hour, and he was just like, "Oh, really excited to get a question." And the guy was like, um, "Yeah, when you uh, log the footage, um, do you use a pen or a pencil?" <laughs> <laughs> just like, "What the fuck?" And then the moderator was just like, "Yeah, I think that that'll do." 
Mm-hmm. That'll do. It, I mean, it, I, I may, maybe that wasn't the exact thing he said, but it was just like you know when you label it. Do you, do you like label it chronologically in like pen, or do you use like a dry white marker you can just kind of take off? I mean, what do you find easiest? It's just like fuck me. And the editor looked like he like he just, that was his big moment, and then some guy had asked the most granular question yeah. about the, the the like the bit that even editors find tedious. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it was just such bullshit. Um, yeah, I, I swear down, I, I don't think I've ever seen a good Q&A. The worst one that I can remember attending was for... It wasn't as part of the festival. This was just a regular one-off screening of the Ken Loach documentary, Which Side Are You On? Mm-hmm. Which was a documentary he made in the 80s about the mine strike, which he essentially intended as a counterweight to a lot of the mainstream press's coverage of the miners strike at that time you know it's all it was very much about the experiences of the miners and about what it was like on the ground and preventing them presenting them in a very sympathetic light and it was suppressed by itv and wasn't shown until after the miners strike had happened and then basically wasn't seen again for for 30 years so it was a one-off screening with him and obviously sheffield has a kind of a strong union and and mining and steel background so most of the questions, and I can understand totally why people want this because obviously it's a very, it's still a very um, fraught issue and, and time period. But basically, all of them were asking him questions about how the unions could have won the comp, the, the 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 battle for public opinion, or what strategic choices they could have made. And mm-hmm. and Ken Loach was just kind of very calmly, just kind of being like, "Well, you know, I didn't, you know, I was just there filming it, you know, I didn't." you know consider strategy from the union perspective (laughs) but that was like every single one was people getting up talking about you know their experiences in the strike which was like great to hear but very quickly it was it became apparent it's like oh people don't really have that many questions so much as they want to just kind of like talk about their experiences 30 years ago and anyone who did kind of get up and ask a question uh, I, i noticed like a lot of the younger people, basically, who were there because Ken Loach obviously is a kind of legendary British filmmaker and they wanted to ask him questions about technique or whatever, tended to be very timid because they'd be like, I'm sorry I was born after all of this happened, but <laughs> I have some questions about your work. Uh, yeah, so that was not not necessarily, like, the worst because it was bad, but the worst just because it was really unexpectedly kind of tense and emotionally difficult to kind of like sit through as a young person i think uh it's like you've got uh an expert on stage who is the best placed person to talk about the piece of work you have just consumed Mm. and you are going to ask them questions which they can't possibly answer Mm. outside of their sphere of influence it's like going to see a doctor and ask him to like do your plumbing you know what I mean? <laughs> You've got this guy who can help you in one specific area and you ask him mm. to do something else. Yeah. I think that's that's your worst nightmare when someone steps to the mic and says, mm-hmm. it's less of a question I've got, more of a comment. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. Wasn't there one recently where, um, uh, was it at the Westworld screening where a guy tried to pitch Christopher Nolan his screenplay? Uh, Jonathan the, Nolan, yeah. Jonathan Nolan. It was like the first question at a Q&A <laughs> and then they just like were like, nah, fuck this noise. We'll get yeah. rid of it. yeah. Yeah, that that's the the ultimate nightmare scenario. Uh, you'd think we would have had like fifty or sixty years at this point of film festival Q and As that people would have figured out either to not do them or to maybe screen the questions beforehand. Yeah, uh, basically, democracy has failed, uh, mm. and I think we need to put in some sort of uh, representational republic kind of 
approach to Q&As or just dict- dictatorial and just have one person with the microphone who asks all the questions. Yeah, and we've still yet to have that, you know, film made by a young alter, and it was like everyone knew he got his break when he pitched his screenplay <laughs> to the writer of the film during a Q&A, mm. and everyone was so blown. That guy is the, guy, the equivalent of the guy who's, like, wolf-whistling at girls. He's yeah. literally got no other idea than just to make loud noises in the direction. Mm. There was, mm. uh, I think it was Ed Solomon, the writer who I think co-wrote the Bill and Ted movies, was yep. sharing stories on Twitter about... A lot of people were sharing their stories about the worst possible moments the people have pitched them and he was saying that like a nurse at the hospital at the birth of his first child just handed him his copy of his screenplay and asked him if he would have a look at it (laughs) wow uh and then he had a meeting with a different writer like a few weeks later and that guy had also had an experience with that same guy who had handed him the screenplay and but that guy because he'd had like four hours in recovery in the hospital had actually read the thing and said it wasn't very good Mm, <laughs> which yeah. is uh, perhaps unsurprising because if you're thrusting your screenplay into the hands of people who are in the hospital due to medical emergencies you're probably not having many luck in the kind of the more traditional outlets yeah yeah that's a that's a fair assumption ed yeah but anyway we're going to be at doc fest next year and uh, i'm really looking forward to it. i'm really excited about it a year in advance because uh, yeah it's one of my favorite things Mm, we're going to hammer those Q&As. I'm going to have so many comments. Not, not such questions, <laughs> just comments. They're all going to be ready. And all my questions will be in five parts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's get into the news this week. There was uh, kind of a couple of... I mean, there's, 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 it's all bad. <laughs> Sorry mm. to be all the news this week is all a downer. We'll start with, I guess, the, the news that broke at the start of the week that Kelly Marie Tran who plays the character of Rose in The Last Jedi in the the Star Wars series, has deleted her Instagram account because of the months of abuse she suffered at the hands of Star Wars fans, in in inverted commas, which just generally kind of like was the most public instance so far of the real kind of toxic nature of a lot of the people who are kind of like claim to be fans of Star Wars and have taken as their rallying cry this idea that the new films under Disney and Lucasfilm headed by Kathleen Kennedy are in some way advancing some sort of insidious progressive agenda and have decided to take to the internet to try and reverse this by harassing everyone involved in it. Uh, which has so far resulted in, uh, like, say, Kelly Marie Chan leaving Instagram, Daisy Ridley pretty much disappearing from all social media, and Brian Johnson constantly being inundated with what appear to be just bots telling him, you ruined Star Wars every time he tweets about, I don't know, a nice meal he had or whatever. Mm, yeah, it's... It's a deeply distressing time because there, with with everything that's coming out, with you know even just the movies, mm. but also like the idea that we're having, you know, a cohesive set of you know stories set in the Star Wars universe, told across you know comics and novels and TV shows and animated shows and everything. Like, there's never been a better time to be a Star Wars fan, mm. but a small group of very very vocal people are making it the absolute worst time to be a star wars fan Mm. and it's super um kind of apparent when you look online where the targets are 
Because yeah. there was three birthdays this week, right? And the Star Wars Instagram, like, put a picture up of the three people's birthdays it was. And um, kind of don't read the comments is all I'll say. First one was Kathleen Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Every single comment, every single comment was, you've ruined Star Wars, when are you going to quit? What? Why are you doing this? Every single comment. Next birthday, two days later, was Dave Filoni. Dave Filoni is the guy who uh, is the showrunner on Rebels. He was the co-creator of uh, The Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, you should be in charge of Lucasfilm. You're the saviour we need. You're our only hope. Every single message was something along those lines. Get rid of Kennedy, replace him with Dave Filoni, a man who has no experience in making feature films, mm-hmm. uh, no experience in running a studio, no ex- experience of even producing feature films. Um, whilst Versus shows... Kathleen Candy, who has produced yeah. like dozens of the most successful movies of all time, setting aside her work on Lucasfilm. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then um, the last birthday was like Natalie Portman, mm-hmm. um, and everyone was like, "Happy birthday!" So you're right. kind of seeing like it's prequel fans, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, just kind of ridiculous assholes, and the. The fact that, um, like, I don't know if you've seen this, it took me a while to figure out whether it was real or not. Mm-hmm. But it, it kind of turns out is real in much the same way that ISIS claim <laughs> responsibility for a terrorist attack. A group has come forward and taken responsibility for driving Kelly Marie, Kelly Marie Tran off social media. Mm-hmm. And they're like, it is literally like the Magician's Alliance from, uh, <laughs> from uh, Arrested Development. It is a group of guys who are called reinstate the expanded universe or something. Right. And they are trying to remove forced diversity from star Wars, place straight white males front and center of their, the, the, the films they want to see. They want Kathleen Kennedy out and, you know, to stop, you know, kind of putting women in, in roles that are significant, um and you know have it back and reinstate the uh the um the expanded universe stuff that is now legends or considered legends by uh Lucasfilm. Now I didn't think this was real because this was so stupid. Mm. But I've done some digging around and it turns out it is actually genuinely a group and yeah. they are they were also the same people who when The Force Awakens and Last Jedi came out went to see it at midnight screenings, and what, and they did what they called a spoiler jihad mm. by filling everyone's Facebooks and Twitters with spoilers about what happens because they wanted to ruin it. They were also the people who who tried to organise the boycott of Solo and are mm. claiming responsibility for that film's failure. And it's funny because that's the first Star Wars film whose lead is a straight white male. Yeah. Um, and that's what they wanted, but apparently they boycotted it. And this is all a way of kind of saying that, like... I've seen a lot of think pieces uh, this week, even on like things like The Guardian and, and like things. This is kind of like just gone beyond movie sites, I think. And I think because it's Star Wars and that's kind of the big franchise, people are starting to kind of take notice of it mm. and starting to realise that, shit, this kind of fandom has got a problem. It seems like it's now moving away from just a few disgruntled people who are shouting the loudest to a kind of Gamergate-style, mm. organised campaign. And that's when it becomes really ugly. Yeah. Um, because, and, and the thing is, is that, like, you know, we've we've kind of provided a platform for this to happen. 
by mm. not not calling this stuff out, like or putting it down in its in its kind of infancy, and, and things like Gamergate have kind of like emboldened uh, people who think that they can just get away with this and think that they can just do this. And if you if you think about it, like you know me and you, you know we rag on the prequels all the time. Yeah. But do I ever tag George Lucas at anything and tell him that he ruined my childhood? No. Did you ever send him a letter, you know, cut out from a newspaper threatening him, which it would be mm. the analog equivalent of what a lot of these people are essentially doing? Yeah, but it, and it's like, you know what I mean? He's just a guy who made like films I didn't like, mm. um, and you know, we seem to be in a time where, and yeah, like you say, Ryan Johnson can just, you know, he can just like message anything. And and this is the thing. I think he he came up. Where he tweeted, or Mark Hamill tweeted this week, something like, "You know, how can you do anything to Kelly Marie Tran? She's like one of life's nicest, sweetest, kind of like most good-hearted, big-hearted people." We saw that during the press stuff of the Last Jedi. She seemed mm. like an old, like a kind of like a bundle of joy and brought into everyone's life. And people were like, um, "Yeah, it shouldn't get personal about the actress, but her character was terrible, and you're a terrible writer." We're just right. like, well, hang on. You're just saying it's not okay to harass people, and then you're following up by harassing someone. Mm. Like it's, uh, it's just so, so tiresome. And I kind of, I hate the idea that this is just the beginning of like this kind of thing. Like yeah. you know, the next Star Wars movie is going to come out, and you know, it's already a, not really a director's chair you want to be sat in, and like you're going to have to have whatever you do. You know, you built into your the the after after you've gone through all the trouble of making it and all the trouble of releasing it and doing all the press interviews for it and everything, you're gonna have to have years of dickheads telling you that you ruined Star Wars. Yeah. In terms of its comparison to Gamergate, I think the the one kind of heartening thing I think about the way this has played out is people are paying attention to it earlier, and mm-hmm. also you are seeing considerable pushback from like people who are who have power in relation to the franchise like obviously ryan johnson has got his new trilogy coming out and is still involved and he's been taking people to task about you know people who have you know like you say people who, who who had been cruel to uh kelly marie tran uh you know he was going after them and and also pointing out the disingenuousness of a lot of people's kind of arguments or and people like you know pablo hidalgo has always been kind of very forceful in just kind of like batting down people who kind of uh air the the sexist and racist complaints about the series and things like that and also i think people are because of what gamergate ended up becoming i think people are more take more seriously this kind of stuff because that was something that was just left left to fester but also because it affected gaming which is still considered like a fairly niche thing it was mm-hmm. just allowed to kind of fester whereas star wars is like a very central thing of popular culture and has been for a very long time so if the fandom for something like that starts to curdle or one part of it starts to to curdle then people are more willing to take notice and kind of shine light on it, which is exactly the thing that these kind of uh, groupings of people don't really want. I mean, they want attention because, you know, they want to effect whatever kind of completely insane form of change they want, but also they don't want people to know how terrible they're doing because then people won't take their arguments seriously. That's why, like, the whole ethics in games journalism thing never didn't, really become 
uh, apparent that it didn't really become apparent that that was just kind of like this uh, smokescreen for what was essentially sexist and misogynist and white supremacist approaches to video gaming until too late because people didn't really pay attention to the huge amounts of abuse that was occurring underneath the surface. People were paying more attention to kind of like the surface level claims and kind of uh, buying into the idea that, oh, it's just a few bad apples as opposed to saying like, oh no, the whole barrel is bad apples Mm. with some nice ones sprinkled on top because they don't really, they don't believe that what people, all the bad stuff that's happening is happening or if it is happening, it's only like a handful of people. Mm, yeah and that's that's kind of what this week has kind of kind of uh what i've seen this week has distressed me that just it, it's not just like one comment in every five it's mm. you know the reverse is true and it's yeah. like yeah there's a lot of bots and there's like a lot of people posting under like you know straw man accounts and stuff but fucking hell man it's just relentless mm. and people don't what i mean what is their best case scenario lucasfilm says oh yeah we've listened to you guys we're going to delete everyone's copies of The Last Jedi and we're going to let you guys remake it. How about that? <laughs> like, we're yeah. going to let some, some fucking dudes who live in their mum's basement, like, remake it. So, you know, it's going to be... You know, I always think about this. It's it's Patton Oswalt's character from Parts and Recreation, um, you know, filibustering a council meeting with the idea that Boba Fett you know, crawls out of the pit of Sarlacc and then joins the Marvel universe because he's got an <laughs> Infinity Stone in his armour. This is what these guys are. These are people who don't have any idea about anything, but they mm. just want the thing that they're imagining in their head. And if they don't get it, they're just going to cry and stamp their feet. And now the internet allows you to kind of reach out and kind of like make contact with celebrities. They feel that that's, you know, a privilege that, they can abuse and yeah. you know i'm sure the you know the people who make films and make art can take people saying you know i didn't like this because abc not you ruined it you're a terrible person mm. it's just the wrong type of discourse completely and yeah. uh you know it's distressing to see it in something that generally i mean we talk about star wars all the time way too much Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's kind of like I, I was shopping for t-shirts the other day, and I found a really cool like visit Tatooine t-shirt, like a kind of like a cool holiday brochure t-shirt. And I was like, now if someone sees me wearing that, they're going to think I'm like some kind of monster, yeah. or are they going to think oh, it's a cool t-shirt? And then I was like, oh, that's sad. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's my it's my wardrobe that's suffering at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess it, you just have to try and push back and fight it. And, and I guess also just try and foster, you know, kind of raise up the voices of people who appreciate their art in kind of a positive way and are not mm-hmm. just, you know, attacking uh, the people who make the art that, that they supposedly enjoy. Mm, yeah, totally. Uh, in other kind of social media related news, you know, there was the very sad news just the other day that Anthony Bourdain passed away the the celebrity chef and memoirist and writer and uh i can't claim to have been kind of like a fan of a lot of his work i'd seen a bit of it and liked it and i i liked him as a person every time that i saw him on on chat shows and things like that he always came across very well and i enjoyed what of his writing i'd read but what i was really struck me and i think this is the the 
the positive end of social media is when someone passes away who has kind of touched a lot of people's lives, even someone you may not necessarily think of in those terms, it does give people an outlet to kind of express that. And I was deeply moved by the tributes that came out to Anthony Bourdain over the last couple of days, the the, the discussion about depression and mental health that occurred alongside that as well. And uh, I, I just found it to be, for a week that started with kind of like a reminder of just how ugly the social media age often is, it was heartening to see at the end of it, you know, this reminder of the capacity it has for like connection and people being able to share the things they're passionate about and their stories. Mm. And this is, this is the power of social media in the sense that I am in this kind of the same boat as you. I kind of knew who Anthony Bourdain was and I roughly knew what he did, but never really engaged with his work uh, in any real sense and which is very surprising given the like you know food and travel for me are pretty mm. uh high up my uh, kind of agenda but the the outpouring of of kind of like personal stories about Anthony Bourdain and also kind of like general things that he'd written and, and like quotes of his that is an amazing way to connect people who don't know who he is to you know that person's work and their their kind of their 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 legacy i guess so mm-hmm. like now i am like fully like i read so much of the stuff and and the tributes and everything and i was like man he should have been one of my heroes mm-hmm. but i didn't even get to know about him until now but now i know about him and it's like now i'm kind of like reading like loads of his writing i've ordered one of his books I've kind of like, you know, um, I think it's his stuff isn't widely shown in Britain, I don't think. No. Uh, like his TV shows, so you kind of have to go a bit further to see it. But like, I've watched some like episodes of, uh, is it Layover, the show he did, where he's like little stops in cities. I think um, so. He, he, did, he did quite a lot, so it's kind of yeah. hard to keep track of them. So I've watched some episodes of that on YouTube, and it's like, you know... The, the you know the the whole the positive side of this is that like people who didn't know who he was or didn't understand what he was about they have just been provided by the perfect uh, kind of like further reading by everyone's amazing tributes mm. yeah i think certainly for me seeing things like there was a quote going around of him kind of like talking about what a monster henry kissinger is uh which is something i always enjoy seeing but also from someone like him who had such a kind of a visible platform to be so often espousing you know like speaking truth to power in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a celebrity chef because you know the the image people have of a celebrity chef is like kind of genial or in the case of you know gordon ramsay maybe less genial (laughs) but 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 the idea is that you know they're they're going out and they're telling people about food but they're maybe not necessarily trying to rock the boat too much but then seeing yeah that you know that that was entirely not his response he had this great passion for life and food and and travel and learning more about the world and that obviously expressed itself in his work but also you know if you're going to cambodia to learn about the food you're going to learn about the culture and that obviously brings up a lot of these deeply painful memories and hearing him uh, and seeing like some of his uh comments about you know the 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 plight of the palestinians and things like that it was really it was really, yeah, it was really moving 
seeing how expansive his view of life was and and like you just kind of like realizing man i should have been consuming this guy's like work for years and years and you know it's, it's deeply sad that, that, that there'll be no more of it but you know now knowing that there's all of this stuff out there that i can track down and you know read and that he was so prolific that at least now i get to experiences and you and you would hope that the impact he had on individual people who talked about you know the way that he had helped them personally or that just like people who were fans of his work who decided to become chefs or more interested in food or travel and you know and how it affected their lives you would you you hope that that will kind of like radiate positivity out into the world in some way Mm. Yeah, I didn't realize until afterwards that he was the guy. He was the fuck baby driver guy. Mm-hmm. So I saw a lot of tweets floating around at the time baby driver came out, and there was just one that floated around and just said fuck baby driver. Yeah. And then it was really nice to see Edgar Wright tweet, and he was like, um, "Whilst I understand that Anthony Bourdain wasn't a fan of baby driver, I was a huge fan of his. And when mm. I found out we were going to be shooting baby driver in Atlanta, the first thing I did was watch his series about." where to eat in Atlanta. And Mm. now I have a favourite breakfast place in Atlanta and it's because of him. And in our final bit of news, kind of uh, continuing on a story that we talked about back in November, which was when it was announced that John Lasseter was going to be taking a leave of absence from Pixar and Disney as a result of uh, allegations of, you know, kind of inappropriate touching and of him generally creating a hostile work atmosphere for most of his employees particularly his female employees it was announced this week but but there was um a lot of rumblings a few weeks ago that he may be let back in he may be coming back to the company and that disney were weighing their options but this week it was announced that lassiter is out at disney essentially he is going to still be involved with the company for a few more months but only in kind of like name only and he's going to be out entirely by the end of the year pete doctor is kind of assuming his roles uh, at pixar for the moment and jennifer lee who directed frozen uh, amongst other movies is going to be taking over his position at disney and uh, i think this is probably the right decision for all involved uh, certainly in terms of the me too movement and disney's desire to portray themselves as kind of this not necessarily a bastion of progressivism, but certainly a place of like, you know, wholesomeness and of, of good corporate values, I guess it would not have looked good for them to hire Laster back at this point. Mm, Yeah. It also kind of feels a little bit like, well, you know, this is what happens when you're kind of a white dude, I guess Mm. you can kind of have, allegations made about you and then six months later someone can decide to shuffle you off at the end of the year probably with a decent severage package and you know he'll probably be absolutely fine whereas i think other people it would have happened and they would have been shit canned immediately yeah it's definitely been kind of like a slow walked exit for him and Mm. the the fact that there was even a discussion about him possibly coming back regardless of how serious those discussions are you know it's hard to tell from hearsay whether or not it was something that was seriously considered or just kind of people admitting that there was a question and then shooting it down immediately uh of just how 
powerful and monumental a figure he was at Disney and Pixar for such a long time. And they, the, the fact they've got rid of him, you know, is kind of a, a monumental shift in, hopefully at least you would hope that it represents a, represents a monumental shift in how the industry is reacting to these sort of things. But, but like you say, yeah, the fact that he's a rich, powerful white guy certainly means that he's had the softest of exits from uh, a job that he should have been removed from outright back in November when it became apparent that there were a lot of very credible accusations against him. And for someone who is like a management position at two of the foremost motion picture studios and artistic institutions in the US to have those allegations lodged against him, then that should have been met with kind of like a very serious response. And really a six months leave of absence probably wasn't, was fairly serious, but probably not the most serious response they could have taken. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you or I had done that in our jobs, we'd have been mm. out on our ear in two weeks. There wouldn't have been some six month yeah, uh, kind of pause to, uh, to kind of figure out what to do. It was just not a particularly great look all around. I'm afraid. It does. It also, makes you wonder if perhaps Disney on some level were kind of kicking the can down the road and kind of maybe hoping in six months time, there wouldn't be so much focus on these things Mm -hmm. because that was always the, always the concern with like when Harvey Weinstein was outed as the the monster that he is and people like all these other stories started coming out about different powerful people in Hollywood that, you know, there would be this burst of initial energy, but then it would kind of like wind down and that it would ultimately, people would try and move on. And you wonder if, you know, six months leave of absence would have meant that after six months, they could have like just brought him back without too many, too many questions being asked. But uh, I think it's, it's heartening to think that, you know, the, the situation and the cultural discussion around these issues is still so prevalent that the, they, they couldn't do that. They couldn't just kind of like bring him back and think, well, you know, we, we gave him a slap on the wrist and now uh, you can come back and we'll woke you back with slightly too open groping arms. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a shame because it's what it's done is, I mean, it's rightly cast uh, the spotlight on um, the atmosphere and um the kind of environment about working at pixar Mm. um because it turned out that perhaps it wasn't that welcoming a place for um kind of women or people of color or women of color um from kind of everything we've heard um which is the kind of thing you want to root out because you can imagine like we all have this kind of like uh um kind of rose-tinted view of, like, you know, the golden age of Disney and stuff. But, like, you know, they're probably, like, dreadful places to work. Mm. And I'm kind of glad we're getting a kind of honest look at it because that's the way you... That's the way you kind of implement change. You think, well, okay, there there was a uh, a kind of environment, a kind of... uh, 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 a kind of hostile atmosphere to work in where, like, perhaps it wasn't to the good of the art all the time. Mm. And, you know, you affect these changes uh, across society, but also in these institutions that you believe in to uphold, uh, you know, kind of cool values. And they don't. You kind of think about it as like, you know, they're all sitting around on beanbags. 
you know, drawing fish with eyebrows. Mm-hmm. But, like, then you turn out that, you know, people are actually miserable working there and, you know, being kind of abused mentally and physically. You know, this is how shit changes. You know, you call it out and you, you shine the brightest light on it and you let the, the, uh, the kind of the, the guy at the top fall on his sword. But unfortunately, it's taken six months to do that. Yeah. But uh, I think it also casts a, a light on, I guess, the 20-something years, you know, since Pixar became a household name. Like, so much of their image management, I guess, has been about, you know, what the atmosphere, you know, all the documentaries on all the DVDs that came out were like, you know, everyone gets to customise their own office and, you know, some people make it look like they're like a race car and some people make it look like their own bedroom or whatever like that. And at the time, you know, certainly growing up, you know, like Pixar to me was this kind of like real kind of like, you know, shining city on a hill sort of thing, you know, like, wow, that's the sort of place you, you want to work. You know, if you're in a creative industry, you want to work a place that fosters talent and things like that. And then suddenly you realize, oh yeah, they made it look like that because they were making those fucking documentaries. (laughs) Of course they were going to make it look great. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and yeah, and and it does. I don't. I don't necessarily think it dimish, diminishes like the art itself. You know, like the the, the great run that Pixar had from like the mid nineties up until until Cars came out, or you know the important work that you know Lasseter did in terms of like working with Hayao Miyazaki and you know getting his work more widely seen in the US. But it certainly complicates that legacy in a way that i think is um is important like it's like you say it's important not to just have this kind of like rose tinted view of these things you have to know that even though these great movies and great things came out of this that ultimately they were made by very flawed individuals Mm, yeah yeah so our topic this week our main topic uh, in honor of the release of oceans 8 is heist movies now neither of us have seen oceans a yet we haven't <laughs> unfortunately had a time to see it but you know i think it's it's a fun thing to talk about in terms of like you know the the way in which heist movies are uh you know there are there are lots of heist movies that have been made but also there are lots of movies where heists are kind of in use as part of the plot it's a very versatile plot construction and genre that can be slotted into all sorts of subgenres. And it's also interesting seeing like how we've had Oceans 8 come out this week and then, you know, we're only three weeks away from when Solo came out, which is kind of billed as a heist movie, but uh, you know, that that feels like a borderline case. And I'm I'm really interested in this episode kind of like looking at those borderline cases and what the what the pleasures of heist movies actually are. Yeah, it's just whether a film is a heist movie or it contains a heist. Mm. Um, you know, The Dark Knight starts with an amazing heist. Yes. But it is fundamentally not a heist movie. Yeah, and when I was looking for examples online about, you know, different kind of what people think are the best heist movies and things like that, I thought it was interesting that Heat came up a lot as heist movies, but there's only really two heists in heat and it's kind of very long three hour running time there's a bank robbery at the beginning and then there's like the main bank robbery in the middle i don't think there's any other than that are there there's the the failed heist where they're being set up um and that arsehole i always think about that arsehole in films the (laughs) guy who ruins everything for everyone he's the guy who he's like a swat guy and he sits down in a storage container he makes a noise and it spooks de niro's character and they call the whole thing off if that guy hadn't been such an arsehole just Mm. stayed on his feet yeah 
you know, the whole, you know, they, these guys would have been in prison by now. Hmm. Would have saved everyone an awful lot of trouble. Yeah, we don't have to sit through an interminable scene of like that guy, those guys having coffee in that, that diner. That was boring. <laughs> Get to the heists, guys. Come on. Yeah. But I think in terms of like when I think of a heist movie, I think also one of the key things is like they're very detail orientated. And I don't think of the actual heists in Heat as being particularly intricate. No. Like, they are. They're bank robberies. <laughs> they're not kind of these like um uh, rube goldberg style kind of plots that are, are kind of really intricately set into motion in order for something to to come off and i guess there aren't that many heist movies that are that intricate that's more something that you you know you was pioneered by the original oceans 11 or um every brexiteer's favorite movie the italian job <laughs> um which which kind of really emphasized the notion of a plot that has like 27 moving pieces that all have to fall into place perfectly. But even so, even like the most simple heist movies, what I think one of the key pleasures for it is seeing the, each stage of it, you know, the planning of it where they're sitting down and maybe they've, you know, got a diorama or a blueprint and they're kind of like working out. It's like, okay, you have to knock off the power here and then we slip in here and you can't knock off the power for these beams. Otherwise the alarms go off. So you have to kind of like slink around them or whatever. And I think uh, that's, that's kind of a, an element of that kind of that entire subgenre that I, I always find immensely pleasurable, especially when it's done well. Mm. And I suppose an interesting counterpoint to that would be something like Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. um, where you know the film is essentially set in the aftermath of a failed heist and the the, the kind of the, the bloody fallout from that. But then, as we go through the film and it chops back and forwards through time, we actually see them planning it in intricate detail, mm. um, and then we see it, the whole thing fall apart. Yeah, I think. One of the the criticisms that I saw of Ocean's Eight, which I think also may also feel like a, a, a criticism of the original Ocean's, not the original original, but like the the Soderbergh Ocean's Eleven movie, would be uh, was that it doesn't really have much of a sense of tension or stakes to it. Like it presents itself with a very kind of with a sense of studied cool, and everyone knows what they're doing, and there's not necessarily a great sense that things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those, those movies all kind of skate by on charm anyway, and and just the kind of like the charisma and the cool of the cast and the way it's presented. But I do feel the the one of the things that's that's really great about those kind of movies is that like you get to see all the intricate planning, and sometimes the plan goes off completely without a hitch. But uh, it's more fun when there's like a little fly in the ointment that causes things to come close to unraveling because that's why for me like even though the movie itself i would not consider a heist movie it's more of a spy thriller but the central uh langley sequence in mission impossible Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why that is such a great set piece is not is not only that we've been told in kind of like uh you know kind of very explicit detail how this heist has to go and, and why they need to dangle uh tom cruise like 50 feet on a wire through the vents and you know how they have to do it in you know a very short period of time and they need to uh, give food poisoning to the guy that's meant to be in the room and all this sort of stuff but it all almost comes undone because jean renault gets spooked by a rat Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and that 
kind of little kind of grain of sand is the thing that you know kind of almost causes the whole thing to unravel and makes that such a uh, you know and like even just like an errant bead of sweat makes it one of the most tense high sequences in any movie Mm, yeah and it's i think a lot of emphasis is put on how like you say rube goldberg style cool the Mm -hmm. heist is and do you think a lot of that comes from like rafifi Something like that yeah. that, like you know, has a very stylized, stylish uh, robbery that a lot of people have tried to emulate. Most notably, if you think about something like Sexy Beast, and mm-hmm. the kind of the whilst the uh, it, well, I suppose Sexy Beast is a bit like uh, Reservoir Dogs. You kind of see it kind of play out in kind of not in chronological order that you are uh, dealing with a, the aftermath of a robbery gone awry. And that, yeah, the whole thing's a kind of like underwater robbery. In Rafifi, it's a silent robbery, isn't it? That's what they do. Yes. It's completely yeah, it's silent like, for like a huge section. Yeah. yeah. I think also one of the things about it that, that why people really like returning to it as a genre is I feel like that detail oriented approach is inherently quite cinematic mm-hmm. because it almost builds naturally, it, it almost gives it a natural three-act structure. You know, the first act is you and you discover what it is that these people are trying to steal, you know, government secrets, a jewel, you know, rob a bank. Then the second act is, you know, the planning and the detail and establishing, and, you know, certainly with good good filmmakers and, you know, and, and good writing, establishing all of the pieces that need to be in place and then seeing it kind of play out it lends itself naturally to kind of very populist storytelling and also you know for for something like an oceans 11 or last year with logan lucky there's the extra fourth chapter or the fourth act where essentially you say okay that was the plan that we were going to tell you the audience about but there was a secret second plan that was operating all along and that's also plays nicely into like the whole into kind of like cinematic storytelling because you can drop clues or you know people may act weird in certain scenes and stuff may happen in the first two acts that you think i'm not sure why they did that why they suddenly kind of like blew up at each other at that moment or you know why it was so important that adam driver's arm got sucked into that vacuum or whatever and then in the fourth act when it's revealing like oh no this was all part of this even more intricate plan it's inherently very pleasurable to see like oh now i see all the pieces falling together and i think that works better in cinema than it does in pretty much any other art form just because the art of editing allowing you to juxtapose like the new information against the old information gives you like instantaneously a fuller picture of what happened whereas if you were doing it in a novel you'd be probably be very indigestible to kind of see it broken down into the page and also you probably feel a little more cheated with the novel where you're being presented with what you think is like a very kind of like comprehensive point of view of what's happening Mm. but it's weird that in novels you know you can plot as intricately and and precisely as you like um but you know i don't really think too many of any great heist novels no, I think they tend to more be ones that then get turned into movies. Because wasn't the Thomas Crown Affair a novel? Ah, yeah, that would say uh, there's some great heisting in that. Yeah, in both the original and the the remake from the '90s, which I remember being pretty good. Mm, I remember but... the it, well. In fact, you talk about heist movies. The original Ocean's Eleven is so tiresome, 
It's um, so slow. Yeah, it's, it's like two and a half hours long. It's, you know, Frank Sinatra and his famous mates, like, there's, you know, a smattering of fairly racist jokes at mm-hmm. Sammy Davis Jr.'s expense. And, you know, it's it's just a slog, that film. Whereas, you know, Ocean's Eleven, the first one, is, you know, snappy and, you know, fun. I mean, it's certainly disposable. That's a mm. kind way to say it. Um, but, you know, it's for the hour and a half that you're watching it, you are having a very nice time. Um, and The Thomas Crown Affair, the original one, is the windmills of my mind, uh, kind of mm-hmm. like a saucy like chess scene, which is, you know, really not that good. Um, and that's really about it. Whereas the Thomas Crown Affair, the remake, is sexy and like also super good. It's actually a really good film. Film. I'd actually like to rewatch that again. I saw it at the cinema and then I rented it from Blockbuster. Uh, I wow. liked it that much. Um, and yes, I wouldn't mind seeing that again. Um, I seem to remember that bit. It's probably awful. <laughs> Once you'll go back and revisit it, it'll be terrible. I, I've heard people semi recently say that it was a it was a good movie, but again, it was very much people from the perspective of they saw it when it came out and were like very pleasantly surprised by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar. I, I think in my mind, it gets kind of wrapped up with entrapment, which was, came out around about the same time. And, you know, that was the Sean Connery and, uh, Jennifer Lopez. No, it's Catherine Zeta Jones. Catherine Zeta Jones. Yes. Catherine Zeta Jones. Uh, perhaps most famous for her kind of like slinking underneath laser beams than anything else. Yeah. They made a lot of that in the trailer, didn't they? It was a trailer, should we say for the dads? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was not necessarily, that was, that was definitely one of those movies where they were making it in the mold of like a Thomas crown affair where they were thinking, okay, there's like a, not a terribly strong story and the, the, heist sequences are okay but what's really going to carry it is going to be the chemistry between the leads mm-hmm. and sean connery around about that point not the most um energetic or enthusiastic of actors mm. and i think that was like even for sean connery i think that was the biggest gap of ages between uh, mm-hmm. him and his love interest and I, I i believe he was like 72 when he made that and she was like in her 30s yeah I was like, uh, mm. Yeah, yeah definitely. I don't want to see these guys pull up a heist. Yeah, there was definitely that sense of like, yeah, Medicine Man was really pushing it. <laughs> yeah, now we're five, we're five years removed from that, or, or however many years removed from that. You know, maybe maybe it's time for you to to stop <laughs> kind of being paired with women that are far too young for you, uh, and you know maybe you should I don't know mentor inner city youths in a in a in a not very good Gus Van Zandt movie. Mm, I kind of just, you just reminded me that Medicine Man happened <laughs> <laughs> as a film. That was a film, wasn't it? I I mainly think of it now because it's a a constant uh, reference point on the Flophouse podcast. Right. Like, they, they always like to bring it up just because of, like, the line where he says, like, uh, I discovered the cure for cancer and then I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a good movie. <laughs> yeah. But a good line, I think we can all agree. Yeah. Uh, And also in terms of, like, earlier you talked about Reservoir Dogs, I think uh, as a movie that kind of hands the heist out piecemeal, but I also feel like you don't see a huge amount of the heist itself actually happening, mainly because it all goes to shit within seconds. Mm -hmm. Uh, I found it really interesting considering how many heist movies there are which either 
subvert the expectations of what a heist is or where you'll see a movie that kind of makes the heist its central premise and then kind of drops it. In the former, in the former category, the the one that left out to me was uh, Sofia Coppola's *The Bling Ring*. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is definitely a heist movie because it's about a bunch of rich people breaking into pe- other rich people's houses and stealing their stuff. But what's kind of fascinating about it is that it's kind of an anti-heist movie in that they don't plan it out; they just go to these people's houses and just kind of like waltz in and steal their stuff, which is kind of. Uh, it is kind of like funny in terms of setting up the expectations of, you know, this great kind of like heist that affected all these really famous rich people. And then you watch, when you watch it, it's like, oh, it was just kind of a bunch of like kind of feckless teens just kind of like waltzing into people's houses and just being like, oh, I'm just going to kind of play with all of your stuff. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of funny because like, you know, it starts off, it is kind of a heist movie, but it's also a scathing indictment on today's youth. Mm, that they are, yeah. you know, you know, shallow and feckless, like uh, like you say. Yeah, like uh, Out of Sight is a film that features a lot of robberies, um, mm. but they're not necessarily heists. They're about characters who do heists and plan heists and heists that go wrong. But you wouldn't say it's a heist movie. No, I guess the the final heist where everything really goes completely wrong and kind of all the plot points come together feels like the closest it gets to that because it's like a big a big house they have to rob so there's a lot more focus on the planning and also it kind of unfolds and uh falls apart in kind of really spectacular fashion but it is one that i saw show up on a bunch of lists and i thought it's kind of more of a of a generic crime movie it doesn't mm. seem to have the the rigor that you would assume you would associate with a heist movie i, I was also thinking it thought it was funny uh, in terms of uh, in terms of heist movies, a movie that I'd forgotten about, but which is totally a heist movie for its first half, is uh, Woody Allen's Small Time Crooks. Oh, the one with uh, Hugh Grant in it. Yes, yes. Where the first half of it is the Woody Allen and uh, Tracy Ullman mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of other people are all kind of like planning to break into uh, i believe it's a bank and in order to do it they buy the building next door in order to open a cookie business and then it turns out that the cookies are wildly successful and end up making them rich so they don't have to carry out the heist which is a funny joke that then leads to the largely not very good second half of that movie Mm. but i did think it was quite funny in terms of like subverting the expectations because it's a heist movie where the heist doesn't happen (laughs) Like, it just gets dropped halfway through because they stumble across a business model that actually makes a lot more sense for them. Mm. And Paddington 2 <laughs> turns mm-hmm. into a heist movie yes, halfway yeah. through. And uh, again, with Hugh Grant being uh, really delightful and uh, really enjoying himself as far as uh, being given a really hugely villainous character to play. Mm. Yeah, there is... Uh, when I was thinking about this, um, the David Mamet movie Heist... Which mm-hmm. is exactly what it says on the tin. It is a heist movie, uh, mostly about people plotting a heist and a heist that happens. Yeah, he's very good at that kind of Ron Seal filmmaking. Is yeah. Uh, Although is, the is Spanish David prisoner Mamet. didn't feature a Spanish prisoner, which was deeply upsetting. That was also kind of like a that was kind of more about a con man. So yeah, mm. not not really much heisting going on there. Ant Man's a good heist movie. Yes, that's one of the ones where like people always try and like say that different marvel movies fall into different genres i think to kind of 
in some way legitimize them like people like really harping on the idea that the winter soldier is like a 70s conspiracy thriller Mm -hmm. and like there's an argument to be made that there are that they they take inspiration from certain movies in that genre mainly three days in the condor where they pretty much lift an entire scene from that movie but it's not it doesn't really fit into that genre kind of too neatly whereas that's one of the few uh, ant-man's one of the few ones where i can think oh yeah no that that it totally is a heist movie where they use the superpowers of uh, paul rudd's character to do really inventive things with the genre that is usually confined by the fact that people have to stay the same size <laughs> yeah it also has a scene in where um michael pena um describes all of the uh plan very very quickly and very very fast cutting which i always like in a heist movie when someone has to run through the details of how it's going to go down mm. yeah and and particularly with michael pena who is such a lively and fun comic presence like he does really good he does a really good job of that when it can be such like yeoman's work to just essentially be given a bunch of exposition to throw out either because it's stuff we haven't been told or just to kind of like nudge the audience along in times of remind you it's like okay like this is so you have everything in your mind before the high starts so that you know either if things are going well or if they are going wrong Mm. it's um um i think comedy lends itself quite well to the heist movie um Mm. there's something kind of like uh freewheeling um and kind of a bit like kind of like it's a caper uh yeah. rather than a kind of like gritty um uh, kind of uh heist about how you know you read those stories about like the the brinks mats guys and you know the people who you know people who do real heists and they're just like real nasty pieces of work it's kind of mm. funny when it's like the lady killers or something like that yeah where i guess they are nasty pieces of work in that they're planning to murder an old lady well in a funny way but- yeah in a funny way um but yeah like the lady killers i think is one of the great uh great examples of a heist movie where it's undoubtedly a heist movie because the heist is central to the plot but the the fun of it is uh, and also it does a really good job of kind of laying out what those what each stage the plan involves but then the the complication isn't you know a policeman showing up at the wrong time or even a rat showing up to scare Jean Renault. It's <laughs> an old lady who wants to kind of sit in on their rehearsals for their, their band that they have to pretend to be in in order to justify why they're constantly downstairs digging. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, there's, is there another really famous healing one? The Lavender Hill Mob? Lavender Hill Mob is a is a is a heist movie, but I don't... I don't remember it too well. No, I don't. I'm, in fact, I'm not 100% sure I've actually seen it. This is Radio Gold, this. Two yeah. people who can't remember if they've seen a film or not. I, de- I definitely have seen it, because I got... Um, when uh, when Virgin was going out of business, I picked up the Ealing Classics collection, which is like 16 or 17 of their movies, uh, and I went through and watched most of the the kind of like the major ones so i've definitely seen the lavender hill mob and i remember that it begins and ends with alec guinness's character in a cafe in like south america and i think at the end it's revealed that he's been like handcuffed the entire time and that he he has he thought you think that he got away with it all but he's actually been caught um but i don't remember what the intricacies of the plot actually are Mm, thanks for spoiling that film for everyone yeah, it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah. I remember it being good in between the, the framing device. 
Mm, yeah. I really should see more Ealing films. Every time I've seen one, I'm like, that's great. I should watch some more, but then I never do. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of um, uh, Went the Day Well, which is not the not a comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the the propaganda film they made during the war, which imagines a what would happen if you know you had German soldiers land in a small town and take it over, and the people have to fight back. And it's a very curious artifact because it's made during the war, but it begins with a man talking to camera being like this is where it all happened the great battle of whatever town it takes place in and all those who gave their lives and so it's it's set in like the near future when britain has won the war which at the time wasn't exactly a given uh, you know so it's kind of giving this hopeful message but then when you watch the movie it's like nice kind of like genteel english people being stabbed and shot <laughs> and i think for a birch like takes a pin not out of a grenade. Th- not and... Thora Birch, Thora Heard, surely. Thora Heard, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Thora, it would have been amazing if it was Thora Birch that's going to get She looks of... great for her age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thora Heard, I believe, like, grabs a grenade and pulls the pin on it and then throws herself into a cupboard with a, uh, a German officer and murders him mm. uh, when it explodes. It may not be her, but that definitely happens in the movie. Mm. Uh, so it's like, it, it's a really fascinating artifact that's also really fun mm. thora birch or heard um kind of kills german officer in covered with grenade not yeah. a sentence i thought i'd hear today no anyway uh, what were we talking about uh heist movies that's yeah, I right, think, yeah yeah it's also you know talking about how it lends itself to comedies i was thinking about you know what are, are some kind of like funny heist movies and i suddenly realized that office space is technically a heist movie because a big part, like the second half of the movie revolves around them kind of laying in this particular scheme about, you know, stealing a tiny fraction of a cent on every transaction in order to enrich themselves. But it's not, you wouldn't, when you kind of like think of what is office space, you don't necessarily think of it a heist movie, even though the whole thing kind of hinges on it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the entire film uh, is centered around um, a heist pulled off by IT nerds. Uh, mm-hmm. who think is incredibly simple to get away with it, even someone who uh, has literally no kind of training in that uh, mm. in the form of Jennifer Aniston's character can realise that this is not going to work and it's only mm. um, through uh, an, a kind of like is it an office fire that the, the office gets destroyed doesn't it yeah. um, that kind of like saves their bacon it's like literally, like that. I mean that's the fun thing about um, that the kind of heist movie goes wrong when it's completely out of their control and the the planning goes completely out the window, which is why whilst it's kind of like laughable and you're right, it's a, uh, you know, a gammon favor at the Italian job. <laughs> um, it does have, you know, a pretty funny ending. It does. Yeah. Like this entire, uh, completely worked out to the tiniest detail plan that has gone off without a single, rarely a single hitch and mm. has involved, you know, driving, minis over ramps and you know kind of like knocking out the entire uh traffic system of is it milan they're in yeah uh, turin i think turin yeah and you know they've gone for this whole thing they've managed to get away with it all and then yeah they just end up <laughs> accidentally driving halfway off a cliff and trying to think of how to get out of it and that is that is quite a funny uh it is quite a funny ending mm. also oh, it's it's, yeah. it's interesting how 
it's interesting how popular that film is considering how i think most audiences really don't like ambiguous endings mm. when that that is kind of like a textbook example of one where it kind of goes i mean there's really only one of two ways that it goes but <laughs> the the intricacies of whether or not they get out of there are left entirely up to the audience's imagination mm, i think i think it's kind of uh funny how and it's kind of weird like how your brexiteers you know like the kind of movies like the italian job and like the great escape um i think i said this before like you know films in which the british contingents do terribly out of it <laughs> like mm. you know in the italian job they go to italy to rob all that gold bullion and they fuck it up um <laughs> through just driving through the hills a bit too quickly um mm. you know and the great escape is a film where all the british people get you know they get rounded up and murdered to get shot in the face um they don't get away from it it's too stupid when someone says you know good luck and it goes oh thank you it's just like you know what i mean <laughs> why are these films held up as like you know oh, good old british values failure well, I think it's a great metaphor for the Brexit negotiations themselves, mm. because essentially it goes in. We went into them with a great degree of swagger and belief and self belief, and then we just fuck it up ourselves. Mm. Which uh, it certainly seems to be the way that the Conservative government has handled the whole thing. Mm. They realise that the van teetering on the edge of a cliff um, is actually full of dog shit rather than <laughs> um, gold. I think that would probably be a more accurate response. Mm. Yeah, it's basically playing poker, not realising that you're showing your cards outward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the backs of the cards that you can see are worse cards than you thought you had. <laughs> yeah, and they're not cards, it's dog shit. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's asking you to leave politely. Yeah. Uh, what were the kind of... There were there any other kind of, like, great heist movies that kind of leapt out to you? I, for me... One of the absolute best ones, and yeah, it's not a original point to make, but you know, the taking of Pelham one, two, three mm-hmm. is is amongst one of the best. Partly because it's the, in some ways, it's one of the most seventies movies ever because it's a exciting action thriller heist movie populated by middle aged men who do not look like they should be in that sort of movie. <laughs> Uh, like uh, Walter Matthau is not really anyone's idea of an action hero, but he he carries it off well. And I think also like one of the the great things about it as a heist movie is that it does a really good job because it centers the the point of view character of the movie is the Walter Matthau character, and so much of the discussion is taking place between him and the mayor's office and all the people who are watching the heist unfurl. The central question is, well, what is their end game? You know, you can't steal a train, uh, you know, is the central problem that they have to contend with. And so, like, one of the things that makes that movie so pleasurable, in addition to, like, the the acting and, you know, the, the, the great kind of 70s New York setting, is getting to see these, you know, this very charming uh, criminal, played by Robert Shaw, you know, kind of have this... Have hold his cards very close to his chest for the entire thing and be like, okay, I, I have a plan and we're going to execute it my way and not letting you know what that plan is until the last second. And the fact that it doesn't work out doesn't make it any less fun watching him kind of like try and carry it out. Mm. Oh, foiled by a sneeze. 
mm-hmm. uh, that entire movie falls upon his knees. What um, like we talked about, kind of Ocean's Eleven and the Thomas Crown Affair being remade in kind of superior versions. Um, did you ever see the uh, Taking of Pelham One Two Three remake with John Travolta and uh, Denzel Washington? Indeed, I did. Indeed, indeed, I did. <laughs> I. I did. In fact, uh, I sent you a gift from it very <laughs> earlier today. Oh, is that what that was from? <laughs> That's uh, what that's from. Yeah, with uh, John Travolta saying to Denzel Washington, "You're my hero." Yeah, that's not superior to the original. No, I mean it's a it's a fun late period Tony Scott movie, mm. but it has got very big shoes to fill, and but but it had like a great cast. Obviously, you know, you had Denzel uh, Travolta, kind of like. Doing doing pretty pretty well. Uh, Gandolfini is the mayor, which oh, is, yeah, a, of course. is a great. Oh, and obviously in, in retrospect, you know, it's it, all of his latter day performances are kind of like tinged a little bit because you know he was. It's it's always so sad seeing him and thinking, God, he was really great, and mm. he was just like so rarely did they kind of give him like the real kind of great work that he could do. But he's he's very good in that, and I really enjoyed him as a guy who is just really kind of put out by the fact that someone is trying to uh, uh, hijack a train in his city. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, really unusual heist movies where, where you know, something unusual is being stolen or, you know, there's, a, a like, a plan to burgle something in particular. I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm either, sh- like, sure I've seen this movie or, you know, it's it's the best movie that's never been made, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure there's like some people who try and burgle a haunted house. Mm. Cause if that's not been made, I'm willing to do it. Like, you know, we'll make that, that film right. There. That'd be amazing. That would be pretty good. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel like that has happened, but I can't think of an example of what it is. Like for some reason in my mind, it's like, that's what Casper was about, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's what the, the BBC sitcom. So haunt me was about. Mm. <laughs> no, I think that was about like clumsy Jewish stereotypes, North London Jewish stereotypes. Uh, I think that's what that was about. Uh, a wow. scene in which a uh, you, you might be too young for this. You, do you remember the British TV? Yeah, there was a British TV sitcom in the um, early nineties or late eighties. I'm going to say called "So Haunt Me," in which mm-hmm. a, um, a kind of molly coddling um, stereotypical North London Jewish grandma uh, choked to death on a chicken bone whilst making chicken soup. Uh, mm-hmm. And then just hung around the house haunting her, her kids and their grandkids. Um, and she wow. said, oi, oi vey a lot, I think. Uh, it was, oh, yeah. it, I mean, I'm remembering it hazily. Like, this this genuinely is a TV programme, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I'm trying to remember, there was a there was a show on children's television in the UK when I was younger, which uh, was... A kind of like you know, like a funhouse style game show. Mm-hmm. But the entire conceit of it was that you were in the the, the people involved, what the kids involved were in a haunted house, and you know they'd have to do challenges that were all you know related to kind of like ghosts and things like that. And the thing that stuck with me about it for my entire life, and that I found really really strange and distressing, mm-hmm. was that. Um, at the end of it, the losing team got prizes and then the winning teams got to be ghosts. And the <laughs> idea being that... And then over the end credits, it would be like, 
their images superimposed over a background and they were made to look like see-through and stuff which is kind of like a funny thing but like as a kid i was like so what they killed them <laughs> it, it it it's just it's just this really weird <laughs> thing where i was like why would you do this Mm, yeah, the winners get these prizes, the losers get euthanized and have to spend an eternity in limbo in this house. Um, I have just looked up So Haunt Me on the Wikipedia, and it says here, uh, So Haunt Me is a British television sitcom about a family that moves into a home occupied by the ghost of its previous resident, a middle-aged Jewish mother. Uh, it wow. originally aired between 92 and 94, and the only other update says, to date, the show hasn't been released on VHS or DVD, and there are currently no plans for a home release. <laughs> So there you go. Um, yeah, it was pretty weird. The The show I was thinking of was called Terror Towers. Terror Towers. Terror Towers, yeah. Wowza. Yeah. Uh, and it certainly worked on me. Mm, yeah. Little little eight-year-old me being like, what is my license fee going towards the murder of small children? Yeah, can't they just gunge them instead? I seem to remember, you know, <laughs> gunging people seem to be... Uh, um, fairly prevalent when we were youths. Yeah, yeah. A truly disgusting word. Mm. Again, what were we talking about? <laughs> heists. Heists. Heists via gunging and uh, yeah. clumsy Jewish stereotypes in BBC sitcoms in the early 90s. Yeah. In terms of unusual heist movies, Inception's got to be kind of an unusual one. Yeah, uh, that's pretty I unusual. Think, I, do you I like that, that movie? I remember liking it at the time. Uh, it. I don't. I haven't seen it in a while, but I don't know if it's just been memed to death, mm. <laughs> or like people making fun of it have has kind of like diminished my uh, my liking of it. But I kind of imagine now, if I watched it, I would find it kind of a little unbearable because it was kind of an overwhelming cinematic experience, you know, with the the sound effects and everything like that, and the, the score, that oppressive score. But uh, I kind of imagine now watching it and knowing where it goes that all of the people explaining what's happening and the rules of it all would probably really get on my nerves mm. yeah it's like someone once said that um and I, I feel like this is fair in some instances but not all that said that uh, christopher nolan is a uh, a filmmaker whose films are like shell games uh, mm. in that like he's more interested in you know, trying to pull the wool over your eyes and be clever than he is in actually telling a story. Yeah. Um, and Inception is probably the truest that that gets. It also feels like, in terms of, you know, a lot of the, the, the movies we discussed as, you know, in terms of heist movies, I think a, a large part of why I like a lot of those movies is that there's kind of like a gracefulness to them. Like, they... Are off. They can be very complicated in their plotting, but they don't feel very complicated. Like one of the great things about Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven movie is like it never feels like it's trying too hard to keep you up to date with what's going on. And I feel like Inception is the exact opposite of that. Like it feels like it's trying very hard to keep you in the loop about what's happening. And so makes it a little deadening as a result. You know, you don't have that sense of kind of elan that is such a big part of what makes heist movies so fun. I also think it, you know, a lot of people talk about that movie as a metaphor for filmmaking, you know, all the various ca characters representing different aspects of the process. And, you know, the idea that it's all about trying to implant ideas into people's minds and to kind of like trick them into believing things that aren't true and things like that. And I feel like 
that's something that's true about a lot of heist movies. You know, it's it it, it that's why it tracks so well to a cinematic mold of storytelling. Is you know, there's all this pre-production. You know, as you're planning the heist, there's all of this. Uh, everyone has their assigned role to make it all work, and then ultimately the the question of where it all comes together uh, ultimately lies in the execution which is why it it fits cinema as a medium so much and and that fi- film feels like it really hits the nail on the head in slow motion across multiple planes of consciousness uh, a little too hard mm yeah yeah what about um and it's been a long time since I've seen this film but isn't bottle rocket pretty much a heist movie it is yeah yeah, in which all the characters kind of just fall apart having weird crises of confidence. Mm. And there's, I haven't seen that movie. I've only seen it once. I've seen, I haven't seen it in like probably about 15 years. But I, I, I use a line from it most weeks. <laughs> when if someone says anything negative about me, I always say, yeah, I'm not as confident as I look. Which is like, I think, the uh, when Owen Wilson's on a bicycle wearing a yellow jumpsuit and someone says, that jumpsuit's a bit tight or something. He's like, oh, I'm not as confident as I look. Um, and I always enjoy that line. Um, but yeah, that, that's a, uh, a film that kind of de- kind of devolves into a fiasco. Mm. Yeah, I really, I really dig that movie. I think it's uh, the, the heist itself, the, the execution of it and how it goes wrong is, is one of the more kind of like deliriously entertaining things, I think. Wes Anderson has ever done uh and I think it's it's not quite as mannered as a lot of his later movies would get and I like most Wes Anderson movies uh, you know I, I don't mind that they're mannered but I think in that and Rushmore there's a nice and and the Royal Tenenbaums there's a you can see a tension and kind of a conflict between him trying to impose his vision uh on you know this this particular kind of storytelling and the kind of like the humanism i guess maybe of owen wilson uh of his contributions to it as a co-writer mm-hmm. coming through as well and making it maybe more more palatable and a little more commercial and i think that's the one where maybe the style and affectations are a lot less apparent than they would become and so that's probably why i think a lot of people don't rate it as much of his later movies because it's maybe less of an expression of him but mm. uh, I, I find it really fascinating seeing a movie which is kind of with just like a sprinkling of Wes Anderson on it, as opposed to the kind of like the full flavor that we get with your your Isle of Dogs and Grand Budapest Hotels. Mm. Um, he also did do uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is a heist movie. Yes, and a very fun In one. In many ways. Um, also thinking um, of heists where there is no actual heist in mm. a heist movie, uh, Usual Suspect is a, a film where the characters many of the characters are trying to work out whether a heist has actually taken place mm. and we get scenes with people planning stuff in great detail where every single character has a unique role in said uh, plot um, uh, that is unique to them that only they can pull off and there is actually no heist central to the movie and the whole thing mm. is is all uh, subterfuge yeah that's uh, I mean that movie obviously has a lot of weight uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, uh, a lot of problems with it at this point but yeah, that was I think the, the 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 game playing that's involved in its structure is, in a sense, kind of like a heist in and of itself. You know, of kind of like misdirecting the audience and making them think that things are happening that didn't. And you know, that that whole movie is to to go back to the Christopher Nolan term. You know, that is kind of like a shell game being played. Hmm. Yeah. Um. And I can't believe that I've not thought of this, 
The Killing. Mm, uh, Stanley yeah, Kubrick. Um, yeah, another heist that falls apart on something tiny. So, like in 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 uh, you know the, the taking of Pelham One Two Three, it's a sneeze, and the killing, it's a faulty suitcase. <laughs> never, never, ever, ever scrimp on you know your luggage wear on a good clasp. Yeah, <laughs> good clasp. Even one of their ones with the fancy roll locks. Mm. How, why did I think it's been said? It's probably you know a very kind of tawdry thing to say. It's been said a million times. But how did it take humans so long to put wheels on suitcases? <laughs> like what were we thinking? Like you banged your knees with it. You 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 like it was heavy. I mean, it it looked obvious that it needs to be on wheels from the beginning. Uh, and they weren't hard to manufacture. Those are wheels. It's just a round it, thing. It's uh, it's all that post-war austerity. All the wheels have been used for the planes. Yeah. So they yeah. didn't have them for suitcases. Mm, they dropped them on the Germans. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> they were really running out of stuff before the Americans it, joined in. It was all... You know, there's all those things about, you know, psychological warfare of making the Germans think they were tanks when there weren't any because they're all inflatable. Occasionally mm-hmm. they'd just fly over and just drop tiny wheels on them and they'd just be like, what are they doing? Mm. This yeah, is, this is this weird. Is... <laughs> this is taking a turn, this war. Yeah, we've entered the surrealist stage of of, every, of World War Two. Yeah. Yeah, when they went when Dali was in the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're going to end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we have enjoyed and that we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend to the listeners this week? Um, well, I'm going to recommend something that involves elaborate heists and stealing stuff. Uh, I'm going to recommend a uh, mini series on Netflix called Evil Genius, um, which is uh, told in four parts and tells the um, fascinating, brutal, violent tale of what became known as the Collar Bomber, um, mm. it, which was a case in which a man was uh, um, purportedly forced to rob a bank um, uh, in... Um, I'm trying to think of where it is in America now. I think it was in uh, uh, Pennsylvania in America in the um, kind of mid-2000s. He was forced to rob a bank, um, and underneath his shirt he had... Uh, what he told everyone in the um, in the bank was a bomb uh, attached, and he had a a cane which uh, which was also a gun. And uh, when he got out and he got arrested by the police, uh, you know, it slowly dawned on everyone that you know was this bomb a real bomb or was it a fake bomb? And I won't say too much more than that because you know it's definitely a, a, a true crime. Sh- uh, show that you want to have all the kind of like twists and turns unfold. It's best you don't know too much about the case. I had absolutely no idea about this case at all, apart from the fact that that uh, Jesse Eisenberg movie a few years ago, fifteen minutes or less, was kind of based on it. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It was about you know, and in in you know, in Evil Genius, it's about a pizza delivery guy. He gets called out to a location. He gets grabbed by some people, um, or did he? Um, and sent to this bank and told to rob it, and then he's given a bunch of clues to go and find things, like this weird scavenger hunt that he needs to kind of uh, do to disarm the bomb. Um, and I'm not going to lie to you, um, the film is pretty hard to watch in some places, mm. um, And but other than that, it is a deeply fascinating, twisty, turny, uh, true crime um uh, series that you can polish off in in two sittings, about forty five minutes uh, apart, is uh, one of those ones where you are 
like, how did I not know that this happened? I think in people in America, it was quite a high-profile case, but over here, it was uh, it was slightly less so. Um, I would recommend watching Evil Genius. They, they they do tell this fascinating story incredibly well. And if it, if nothing's big right now, it's true crime. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I think I'll I'll have to check that one out. I I vaguely remember that fifteen minutes or less was based on a real story, mm-hmm. but uh, I hadn't made that connection until now. So yeah, I think I think I will uh, check that one out. Mm. Uh, I'm going to recommend a movie which uh, I, I realise now does in fact feature a heist, but a an incredibly haphazard and dumb one, um, but played very funnily. Uh, it's the movie Game Night, which came out a few months ago. Uh, directed by John Francis Daly, Sam Weir himself, and uh, Jonathan Goldstein, his kind of like a writing partner who uh, previously wrote and directed the Vacation remake that came out a few years ago, and also Spider-Man Homecoming. So a couple of guys who've had uh, a kind of a run of success recently. And this is, uh, for my money, the, the best thing they've been involved with so far. The premise is that this group of friends who have a, these highly competitive game nights every week are invited to one being held by Kyle Chandler playing the venture capitalist brother of Jason Bateman's character and he tells them that instead of a regular game night where they're playing like Monopoly or whatever they're going to have this kind of augmented reality situation where you know two guys are going to come in and kidnap one of them and then they're going to be left with a series of clues in order to find out where they are. Unfortunately, for everyone involved, uh, real kidnappers come up and take Kyle Chandler away and that everyone else doesn't realise that something terrible has actually happened. And so the movie kind of goes from that premise. It has this kind of man who knew too little kind of uh, idea driving at all of these people, not realising they're involved in a deeply serious and deadly criminal situation, uh, but kind of blithely going through it as if they're playing a game. It is one of the, the the best mainstream comedies I've seen in a while. It's funny from the off. It has a real kind of sharp visual sense to it. It's very heavily indebted to slash making fun of the work of David Fincher, which you can really see in uh, its use of long takes and its score by Cliff Martinez, which is very clearly indebted to, uh, well, his own work, but, but at various points is clearly riffing on the Social Network soundtrack. And it's just got a great cast, you know, in addition to Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams, you've got uh, Jesse Plemons showing up in a scene-stealing role as their kind of, like, awkward, creepy cop neighbour. Sharon Horgan, the the great Sharon Horgan, kind of has a a great, very funny role in it. Uh, And a bunch of other people who I won't mention because it's quite fun seeing them show up. Uh, And I was just, I was immensely charmed by it. Uh, I rented it yesterday and watched it, and I'm probably going to watch it again tonight after we finish recording, because just in thinking about it uh, today, I was just thinking, God, that was a really funny, satisfying movie. And uh, I think people who uh, missed it when it was in cinemas, it did okay, but not like gangbusters numbers, uh, would do well to pick it up now, because it is a a really, really funny movie. Mm, Yeah, I saw it at the cinema, uh, saw... Uh, the trailer at the cinema and laughed all the way through it and just kind of presumed that they'd just put all of the best jokes in the in, in the trailer and then after it disappeared from from theatres everyone was saying how good it was so I will be looking for that one when it hits you know kind of iTunes or whatever um, kind of which can't be far away. Cool. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please. Uh, subscribe to us, write us a review on Stitcher, Player FM, iTunes, all the usual places. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. And we 
post kind of uh, recommendations following on from our main topic each week. So if you follow us on there, you'll get this week, for example, a bunch of recommendations for fun heist movies. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.